0: We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and extend our respects to any Aboriginal
1: or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hello and welcome to Novel Feelings, where two psychologists take a deep dive into your favourite books. I'm Priscilla, and today I'm flying solo as your host, so hopefully nothing breaks today. I'm not alone in this episode, though, because today we have an interview with Sarah Sasson, author of Tidelines. Sarah Sasson is an Australian physician writer living on Godigal land in Sydney. She completed her studies at University of New South Wales and Sydney University and has spent time living overseas in Chicago, Singapore, Montreal, Hanoi, and Oxford. Sarah's poetry, short stories, and non-fiction have been published in Australia, the United Kingdom, and USA. Sarah's debut literary fiction novel, Tidelines, was shortlisted for the Veruna House Publisher Introduction Program and longlisted for the Queensland Writers Centre Publishable Program. Tidelines is published by Affirm Press in 2024. And let me tell you a little bit about Tidelines. It's Sydney in the early 2000s, and Grubb is spending the summer with her universally adored older brother, Elijah, and his magnetic but troubled best friend, Zed. Their days are filled with serving, swimming, and hanging out. Life couldn't be better. But years later, Elijah disappears and Grubb's family unravels. At first, Grubb blames Zed. He was the one who derailed Elijah from a bright future in the arts. But as Grubb looks back at those dreamy summer days, the sanctuary of her certainty crumbles. Was Zed really responsible for her brother's disappearance? Was anyone? Tidelines is a tender coming-of-age novel about growing up in the face of unimaginable loss. It examines the stories we subconsciously write for ourselves and what remains later when we have the courage to tear them apart. Thank you to Affirm Press for linking us together. And before we get started on our interview, here are our usual disclaimers. We are trained psychologists, but this podcast should not be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. The first half of this interview is spoiler free, but the second half contains some spoilers for tidelines as we dig into the mental health content and what happens in the second half of the book. Here are some content notes. Today, we are talking about topics such as grief and loss, addiction and substance use, burnout and trauma. And now let's get started with our interview with Sarah Sasan. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you again for taking the, uh, the time to do this interview with me. Um, congratulations on the release of your debut novel, Tidelines. That's really exciting. How has it all been?
0: Thanks, Riscilla. Yeah, really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, on the podcast, uh, yeah, it's been a big week. Uh, the book came out on Tuesday, so yeah, it's been really exciting to see the novel start appearing on shelves in uh, local bookstores, and um, you know, friends yeah. uh, messaging me with pictures of it. So yeah, it's been feels like the end of a very long road and the start of another.
1: That would be, I can imagine, quite a mixed bag of relief, but also anticipation about seeing what people's reactions would be to the book.
0: Exactly. So yeah, this first, the first few days everyone's buying it and then you're sort of sitting at home, drumming your fingers, waiting for people to sort of finish reading it. So yeah.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Um, So, your biography states that in addition to being a writer, you work as a clinician and a scientist. How do you balance it all, not just in terms of the time demands, but also the mental demands of your jobs?
0: It's a good question. Uh, I guess some days better than others, but I was always, um, I always had really broad interests. So, in high school, my favorite subjects were English and biology. And uh, I didn't have like really definitive, uh, career pathway. Um, but I feel like the whole time I've been trying to balance sort of, um, the humanities with my more sort of, uh, analytical quantitative side. Um, so yeah, at the moment I'm yeah just very interested in, you know, medicine, obviously, um, and science, but also writing, um, yeah, so my week is really split between a job at um, a public hospital, large public hospital in Sydney uh, and a university where I do medical research. Yeah, really my writing has happened uh, you know, in the evenings uh, when my children are asleep and on the weekends. And yeah, every day is a little bit different. Yeah, I actually find that really rewarding
1: Yeah, wonderful. That's totally impressive. I'm just, I'm always impressed by people who can balance a full time job and writing as well. I used to want to be a writer, and then full time a full time job happens. (laughs) I haven't gotten around to it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I would also say it took me a very long time uh, to write the book. And yeah, I have a lot of these conversations now with people who want to write, but I also I did very much chip away at the early drafts of Tidelines over many years so Mm -hmm. I would also say you don't have to pull out a novel in a year but um yeah I did chip away at those first drafts over many years just a little bit at a time um and Mm -hmm. you know and there's there's many winding roads to putting a book out so it can be very slow work but I think yeah equally as rewarding.
1: Yeah, great. Um, Speaking of balancing humanities with um, the science side of things, in a previous interview, you said that medicine and literature are both ultimately concerned with the human condition. Would you mind speaking more on this?
0: So I guess um, long before I became a doctor, which I became a doctor sort of in my late 20s, yeah, I would consider myself, you know, a reader and a writer long before that. So I always just Um, I was always had my nose in a book and I always wrote, uh, you know, a lot largely for myself, um, to sort of make sense of the world. So I think by the time I came to study medicine, um, you know, those parts of myself were very developed. And I remember the, you know, when I found out I, I got into, um, the graduate medicine degree, one of the first things I did was sort of, I sought out, um, literature like medical humanities literature and other books about um, caregiving and the patient doctor relationship that's the way I went into medicine mm-hmm. sort of um, with a strong grounding in that in those sort of humanistic elements but as a physician yeah that's very much a part of my work um, is you know face to face with patients and you know in the first step of um, being with a patient is really taking history and talking to them you know that that's a very mm-hmm. humanistic yeah. kind of um, process so for me yeah there are common threads there you know I'm very interested in uh you know people and their stories and you know as I often say medicine medicine is full of stories yeah and it's very it's also because when you start as a junior doctor you work very long shifts and you come home and then you turn on the tv and it's actually full of medical dramas yeah yeah <laughs> shows that popular culture fascination with the medical world is really because it's full of interesting stories and you know the human condition and conflict and drama and and you know that's all very uh, true to life
1: yeah absolutely that that is how I imagine Grey's Anatomy has reached 13 seasons or something like that now (laughs) how do you think writing has influenced your work as a physician?
0: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so, apart from mm. that, as just sort of, I definitely don't uh, approach medicine as a, as a hard science yeah. mm-hmm. alone. So I think there's just those humanistic qualities. I think the other commonality is really empathy. So I think doctors and writers share often are people with a great capacity to empathize with other people. I think to write a novel and to have readers come along with you and suspend their own reality. You know, mm-hmm. you have to be able to tap into, um, understanding other human beings or, and, uh, how emotion works. And similarly, when, you know, when you're a caregiver, you know, empathy mm-hmm. plays a huge role in developing that therapeutic relationship. So I also think that's a common, uh, yeah. common thread. So I think, um, writers often have empathy and, and develop it. And so I probably brought, um, brought that into medicine as well and, yeah. I guess on the flip side, how has medicine influenced my writing? Well, I'm still very interested in in the medical humanities, so I, I'm yeah. very. No matter what story I'm writing, I always seem to find the edges that interface with um, medicine and I think it's because I've spent so much of my working life, you know, thinking about cells and molecules and disease processes and how that changes a person's lived experience. So uh, I can't seem to get away from from it. Um, So, yeah, yeah, I suspect a lot of my writing will be on that um, medical humanities interface.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like then your writing is that, Venn diagram between your two great passions so which is it's wonderful to find a niche sometimes yeah
0: <laughs> yeah hopefully I can just find that sweet spot in the Venn diagram
1: <laughs> absolutely do you ever think about balancing your writer persona or brand I suppose as we would call it these days with your professional image as a clinician
0: yeah it's an interesting question I think um for a long time, as I said, I really wrote for myself to process and understand the world better. And occasionally, I would send things off for publication or um, competition, but it never really impacted my yeah my working life at the hospital. And a lot of people didn't know I wrote, so that's been really interesting. I kind of kept my two worlds separate. Yeah. So the very interesting thing about um, releasing a debut novel is. Um, yeah, the the cat's out of the bag, and yeah. <laughs> um, colleagues uh, for the very first time uh, know now that I write. So it's that's been a little bit mm-hmm. interesting, and um, yeah, a little bit stressful for me, um, but not in a bad way. Just just I just feel like my worlds yeah. are colliding. Uh, I am a little bit conscious of the fact that. Um, you know, I'm still seeing patients and, um, you know, that sort of doctor caregiving role is, you know, a huge amount of trust is put in you as a physician. And then, you know, on the other hand, I'm yeah writing fiction. So, uh, yeah. that's interesting. And I think sometimes I probably, yeah, sort of temper myself or I probably take less risks in my fiction because, because of the way that maybe I'll be yeah. perceived you know, in my professional life. Yeah, it's hard to write really risque or avant-garde things, you know, when you know you're in this very public sphere. But yeah, apart from that, though, yeah, it's overwhelmingly been um, a positive response from my colleagues. Um, But yeah, it has been funny that um, it's all out in the open now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's good. I think that sounds a lot when I fantasize about publishing a novel, that's kind of my thought process as well like what would happen if a client come in and say mm. I've read your book and you know yeah. what would that be like even with this podcast sometimes I'm like oh what would happen if the two kind of collides and someone mm. you know my colleague knows about this but what if a client finds out and you know things yeah. like that I think it's always interesting to think about the the balance of the different parts of ourselves I suppose yeah
0: and I don't think um, yeah I think we probably overthink it, or I probably yeah. do. But I, but I often look at um, other writers on, you know, in social media or the lay press, and you know, artists play a really important role in um, challenging social norms and driving um, political debate. And you know, often they're right on the edge of cultural change, and, and they can be quite disruptive figures in, you mm-hmm. know, in both positive and negative way. But um, you know, physicians in public hospitals you know, we were bound by um, guidelines, we can't really speak to the media mm-hmm. um, without prior approval. So that, that yeah. that's quite, you know, I can't just speak for myself at all yeah. times, you know, I do have responsibilities to um, the organizations that I work with. So yeah, I, that's sort of when I often think about it is sometimes like, Oh, wow, look at those writers, they're really, um, yeah. you know, they're just really out there, um, putting their thoughts into the world, which is wonderful. But I always have to have that voice in my head, like, um, you know, you got to go to yeah. clinic on Monday. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Sounds like you're doing a good job uh, maintaining no, that balance. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's dive into okay. Um, Since we are in the first section of this interview, we'll keep it non-spoilery. So the main character in timelines is referred to as Grub or Dr. Donny Hugh but her actual given name is never actually mentioned in the book unless I've missed it somehow. <laughs> no. Okay. What prompted that decision not to give her a given name?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And a few people ask me, they're like, did I miss it? Um, no. So I'm, um, look, I'm a huge Margaret Atwood fan. And when I was, young I think I was 20 I um, went over to Montreal in Canada to study at McGill University and I studied Canadian literature and one of the books we studied was one of I think it's a second book called Surfacing a beautiful novel which I would highly recommend and I read the whole book of Surfacing and loved it and then went to lectures and and then I and then I realized that She was an unnamed narrator and it kind of blew my mind. I'd never read a book with an unnamed narrator before and I just couldn't believe she'd gotten away with it. I thought it was amazing. So it's a little bit of a riff on Atwood's surfacing. Um, So, yeah, for most of the book, uh, the main character is known as Grub, which is a family nickname, and then towards the end, you know, through her own uh, ambition and hard work, she, you know, she graduates from medical school and becomes Dr. Donahue. So yeah, I just kind of like that development um, of, you know, she starts the book with a name given to her by her family, but she finishes, you know, she's um, created her own name through her own choices. So yeah, you definitely haven't missed it. I didn't put any other names in there. But um, yeah, it was sort of attribute uh, to another writer, essentially.
1: I love that. It's like it's a marker of that transition in her growing up from being this little girl to her own woman, and mm. that's. I can see how that is tied to what happens with Elijah as well, and his impact on Grub. Speaking of which, Tide Lines tracks the unraveling, so to speak, of Grub's brother Elijah, who started out as the golden child, so to speak, uh, as the one who is full of potential. One contributing factor to Elijah's difficulties is addiction. Uh, what are some of your considerations when it comes to portraying his substance dependence and how it impacts his relationship with Grub?
0: I should start out by saying, uh, so before I wrote this novel, I'd only ever written uh, poetry, so I didn't have a... You know a clear and finished vision of how the novel would finish, uh, but I did know um, I did know I was writing a coming of age novel, and I did know I was writing about ambiguous loss. So in the first drafts of the novel, uh, Elijah disappears in in the third act, and we don't really uh, we initially don't find out what happened to him. And then I realized that was very unsatisfying for the reader, and so we're sort of working backwards from that, like we'll. Um, what could be the factors at play that would cause a young man like Elijah to disappear? Uh, so and then as as we spoke earlier, you know, through, uh, you know, I'm a trained as a physician, so I spent a lot of time in public hospitals, but I, I did spend a few months um, in a, a, a rehabilitation centre uh, for uh, mental health and addiction and trauma, and I think through some of my life experiences that came into the novel about, yeah, how that might Lead someone to uh, disappear, and I just find it interesting. Addiction is quite interesting. Um, often, it, often in the book, I'm playing with that idea too about genes versus environment. Mm-hmm. So you know, obviously, genetic factors, inherited factors, probably c- contributing to addiction, but then you know the environment we're in also plays a hand, and and that sort of yeah. you know thread in guidelines as well. So that was some of the thoughts going through my mind and then obviously their relationship is one of the central relationships of the novel and it's really a book about sibling love but then how that love uh you know is challenged and put through the ringer a bit by um the the addiction and health issues that elijah has
1: yeah and i feel that definitely comes through later as i suppose elijah becomes more of the dependent one i i don't know if that's the right word but when they were growing um growing up, it seems like Elijah was forging ahead and Grub was following. And then the tables turn later in life, and you can see how that role reversal impact or have a strain on their love for each other as well. So I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So growing up, yeah, there's a three years age gap. It's also interesting to think about when you're the book opens when Grub's fourteen, Elijah's seventeen, and I think when you're younger, you know, three years is, is huge, but then, you know, as you go into adulthood, really, you know, five and 10 years doesn't even seem like that big a deal in like relationships or friendships. Um, so yeah, but definitely, uh, yeah, I was writing into that, um, reversal of, uh, yeah, she, she, I think she says at one stage in the novel, um, I, for the first time I felt older than him, um, mm. because yeah, as you said, his life is starting to unravel and um, and he's starting to lean on her rather than the other way around.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that you knew going in that you were writing about ambiguous loss and that really stood out in the book as well, particularly, and I don't think this is a spoiler because it's in the blurb, <laughs> that Elijah disappears in, uh, in the course of the novel. Um, can you talk about your considerations when approaching writing amb- ambiguous loss?
0: Yeah, I was really uh fascinated that you picked up on that with um with the question uh because if I trace back to you know the very origins of this novel so the 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 novel and the characters are all fictional but um it was written uh at a time when I was going through a lot of personal grief as well and so if I had to trace back um, the kernel of the novel. Uh, so I lost my my dad's mother, my nana, who I was very close to. Uh, she died, you know, she was 85 and she'd lived an amazing life and was really quite fit and healthy to the end. But um, she died very suddenly. And while I was grieving her, there were a couple of very high profile cases of missing children, um, both here and, um, and overseas. And that were being televised a lot at the same time. And it was really sitting in my own grief and watching. And I, I was like, oh, it's so, my grief is so heavy. And yet, you know, my loved one was 85 and had a good life. And we know exactly what happened to her and she didn't really suffer. And it was really that empathy with these cases that were very high profile of these missing children. And really that was the kernel of tidelines. because I just thought, how how do these families cope and move forward and live with that ambiguous loss of losing their child um, and actually not knowing what happened to them. So um, so yeah. those are the two things that I knew, coming of age and writing about ambiguous loss. Um, you know, as I said, because of the narrative arc in a book, I didn't think it was fair to the readers to leave it completely open yeah. at the end. I yeah. think that would have been a satisfying road. So that's, um, but that's really in solving those uh, sort of writing issues was, was how the rest of tidelines sort of came to be.
1: There are more that I would love to talk about in regards to the book's themes, but that would be spoilery. So before mm-hmm. we move on to the spoiler questions, do you have any author or book recommendations to share with our listeners?
0: Yes, definitely. So yeah, I'm very aware with Tidelines that I'm writing, um, from the point of view of a, of a sibling, um, of someone with uh, mental health issues. So, uh, I think really great companion pieces would be sort of first person own voices accounts of people actually living um, with mental health challenges. So, two books that I read sort of quite recently Anna Spugger Ryan's A Kind of Magic um, is a I mean, she's a stunningly beautiful writer and uh, really it's such a personal story, but I loved I loved that book. And more recently, Roz Bellamy's Mood, again, a memoir, an Australian memoir about... Um, living with, well, it's actually part of it is getting the diagnosis. So Roz really um, beautifully writes about how difficult it is sometimes to link symptomology and feelings with finding the right caregiver who can make the right diagnosis. They sort of bounce around between um, clinicians and um, and diagnoses as well, but it's really powerfully portrayed. More from overseas novelists, after I wrote Tidelines, I read Transcendent Kingdom by Ya. Gyasi, uh, and that's really—it's a stunning novel, um, but it's very interesting. It's sort of in dialogue a little bit with Tide Lines. It's written uh, in America during the opioid epidemic. So again, there's a brother-sister relationship, but it's more um, heavily centered around um, the opioid epidemic, but there are some interesting comparisons uh, with Tidelines. And I recently uh, discovered the work of Patricia Lockwood, um, who wrote No One Is Talking About This and Pre-Study um, and yeah, both excellent books.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Those are great recommendations. We'll include them in our show notes as well so that our listeners can find them. All right, let's move on to the next section of this interview. If you haven't read Tidelines to the end, Please come back to this later um, because we will be talking in more depth about the plots and some of the themes as well. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or Mc Crispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. i'd love to talk a bit more about grub um, so she studies medicine but she steps away from the practice of medicine due to burnout and finding it quite confronting Can you talk a bit about why research is better for her than medical practice, at least at this stage of her life?
0: Yeah, so I think in high school, Grubb recognises, You know, I think she is a quite empathetic person and she says uh, quite explicitly she sort of wants to use uh, her career to sort of help other people um, and thinks that means studying medicine, Uh, but, yeah, finds the hospital work very confronting um, and so yeah i think begins her internship um and but then sort of i think suffers quite a lot of um vicarious trauma through that work and ultimately has yeah kind of a a breakdown and then Mm Eventually, there's an ad in a paper talking about um, doing PhDs in medical research, Um, you know, and that's a way for her to use her uh, intellect and skills, um, still helping uh, people and and the field of medicine, but in a way that's less, um, yeah, frontline every day. So she moves into the lab and, you know, I, I guess I did... I mean, I actually, I was very lucky and I was in a big, well-supported hospital for my internship and felt very well prepared and and quite like hospital medicine. But the whole way through my training, um, you know, there were definitely moments where I would catch myself and go, you know, wow, this is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And I can totally see why some people don't enjoy this and why some Mm -hmm. people walk away. And actually, yeah, my, um, my partner is a doctor as well. And I remember he graduated the year above me and we were so excited when he when he first stepped into the hospital and after his first day I was sort Mm -hmm. of like jumping around saying well how was it and and you know the senior doctor that he was working with you know that had decided to leave medicine and for similar reasons actually just saying you know it was all getting too much and um, he was finding just the, Mm -hmm. um, the amount of Trauma but he was being exposed to and sort of other people's um, pain and suffering, finding it too much. Um, so yeah, so th- that's part of Grubb's story. And so I sort of wrote it, you know, in a part it's sort of the narrative drive. But as I was editing it, I mean I finished the book long before COVID, but it was interesting how COVID impacted the healthcare um yeah. workforce. And yeah, you know, and you know, I was at at the hospital through COVID, but we're seeing huge amount of um of burnout, lots of people leaving and then even the people who are sticking around, um, you know, there's just a lot of fatigue and exhaustion. It's a very tired work at the moment so it sort of of held true as I was writing and editing, you know, that issue of doctor burnout I think has only become more relevant, not less.
1: You mentioned vicarious trauma and I feel like that's such an important thing for anyone going into the health uh, or caring profession needs to know about. And I've seen so many headlines, I feel, about young doctors struggling with their mental health at the start of their practice. If we have any future medical professionals listening to this episode, what ideas or suggestions would you give them about looking after their own mental health? You're shaking your head.
0: It's so hard. It's so hard. And I don't... um, I'm thinking back and... (laughs) Yeah. You know, you get a lot of advice as a medical student and a junior doctor about, you know, and make sure to take care of yourself. But yeah. really, I can't remember much practical training. We got very good training in um, Breaking Bad News. We had amazing mm-hmm. um, sessions at Sydney University where I was. Yeah, we had uh, sessions with professional actors and actresses who would right. come in and we would role play, you know, giving a difficult diagnosis or explaining someone had passed away. You know, just that was an amazing experience. So I felt in some areas quite well prepared, but taking care of your own health while you're, um, you know, working a really demanding job, caring for other people, it's really hard. And I think there's no easy answer because the answer is going to be very different for for everyone and and things that worked how i take care of myself would be very different Um, but you know the general the general guidelines is you know um, number one you have to have your own gp or and your your own um healthcare team Um, and for some people that also means um a psychologist and a psychiatrist because a lot of um healthcare workers obviously have their own um own mental health um that needs to be maintained I think also uh, for me, and this is sort of linking back to, you know, why I'm holding on to writing. But you know, staying in touch with those things that bring you joy um, outside of medicine, and when you're going through specialty training, you have to sacrifice so much because the study demands are so great. So you end up, you know, you know your social life winds down. Um, you know, you do less of everything that you used to, and it's very easy to let those. Other things slip away, things like hobbies and interests and sporting teams and musical instruments. And you know, for me, you know, write creative writing, having a creative outlet, but the more I go on, you know, they're not added extras, they become essential. <laughs> they become essential yeah. to going on. So yeah, the, the advice I would would be to just like really cling to those things in your life that bring you joy. Um, because um, you know, you're gonna need them and ultimately. Um, Another very powerful thing, when we graduated from medical school, I remember there was a final night and we had a dinner and a very senior hospital um, staff member stood up to give a speech. Mm -hmm. And some of his parting advice was, you know, medicine is a career that will devour you. (laughs) And it was (laughs) a very funny thing to say because I was sitting there going, oh, it's such a happy occasion. And, you know, all of the mood was really elevated. And he really stood up there and said, medicine... The career that will devalue. I think of that often because I think he was just trying to warn us by just saying, like, don't let this become your whole life. You know, yes, enjoy your job and work hard and you'll get a lot mm-hmm. out of it, but don't let it become your whole life because um, you know, I think it's as you would know as well as a psychologist, yeah. I think you can't let anything become your whole life and you need no. balance and perspective from outside world as well
1: yeah and I suppose when you go you know people who go into these caring professions you're there because you want to help and look after other people and sometimes it's so easy to just bring that home and be in that mindset about you know what about that person or that person what else can I do or what did I do wrong I think particularly Mm -hmm. my parents are both doctors so Mm -hmm. growing up you know they would be talking about work at dinner the dinner table and they would say, Oh, this patient passed away today. Now, I'd be like, this seems like such a big deal, but they seem to have gotten to a place where that was part of life, I suppose.
0: I'd love to explore the children of yeah. doctors, and especially <laughs> two doctors. I think half, well, some of them go, I want to be a doctor, and yeah. then the other half were like, not pay me enough yes. to be a doctor. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I, it's very funny because yeah, as I mentioned, my partner's a, medical, a doctor as well, and um, and so we have because it's hard because we yeah. come home and we it's part of our debriefing process too is mm-hmm. to talk to each other, and obviously often the children are around. But yeah, you realize how it's such a rarefied environment, and we do have to catch ourselves, you know, depending on what company yes. we're in, because <laughs> the normal comes the conversation, you know, can be very confronting for yeah, uh, yeah children but just um, other people who aren't exposed um, to that trauma.
1: It's unfortunate that Elise isn't here today for this interview because she and I have taken different paths in terms of you know the clinical practice versus the research so that was part of why I was interested in Grub's journey with that as well. Do you think there will be a time where Grub will go back to practicing medicine or is research her true love?
0: Oh that's interesting. Um, I think um, I feel like if Grubb had gotten help in the hospital and was supported, I definitely think she had all the attributes to be a very good doctor. So I think she kind of cut her losses very early. So, um, but I, the way, yeah, I think she's pretty happy now with the path that she's chosen in research because I, because yeah. she feels that she's in people. Um, but also, there's a bit of a sense that, um, you know, she quite enjoyed and and um, sort of unveiled a talent there for the kind of research that she was doing and was getting, you know, some good results and some good feedback from, um, from her supervisors. So, uh, yeah, I think she stays, I think she stays on that path uh, of helping people um, just a couple of steps away.
1: Yeah. yeah, still an important role in helping people as well. The other theme that I wanted to talk about is the immigrant experience, particularly of Grub and Elijah's parents who are who have both been affected and displaced by war and conflict. And we still see the impact of that trauma on Grub's grandpa. Later in the book, Grub's friend Saray, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah. Uh, she she talks about her parents fleeing Cambodia. Uh, why was it important to you to include these stories in the book? I
0: think it's very important that uh national literary um canon is reflective of of real life and I think you know I have read a lot of uh, Australian fiction in my time and um, you know there's lots of families in this country who can trace their heritage back to the first fleet and colonial times Um, and then excitingly we're seeing a lot of books um, you know from new migrants and sort of Mm. um, first generation stories um, which I think are also excellent but Yeah, so, but there's also a lot of families in between. And I would, I'll just say, you know, I did lean into my own family history a little bit there because, um, you know, people, I think, often make assumptions about me, but, you know, just Mm. based on how I look, um, that, you know, maybe my family has been um, in Australia for a long time. But, you know, the sort of genealogy that comes through the book is, is pretty. True. So I think, you know, I'm about third generation Australian on my mum's side, who was um Northern Irish. Um, yeah, and then and then my my dad had the same immigration story as Rebecca's family. So I just wanted to um write into the that truth that actually um there are multiple generations of Australians yeah. in this country. I wanted the book to reflect that. Um, but also I've spent most of my life living in big cities. Um and Sydney's mm. a big city with lots of different uh cultures and it really excitingly like I know so many um people and couples where we're now seeing you know all these different cultures are coming together and to each other and getting married and having kids and I just wanted to embrace that complexity and just say you know Australian literature isn't just um, you know about you know, people who arrived in the first fleet and and the very early days and mm-hmm. the and the new migrant stories that there's actually a complexity there that we should embrace and celebrate. Of you know what an amazing country we have that has welcomed so many waves of immigration and now we're all bumping up together yeah. and living together, with neighbors and friends and falling in love with each other. Yeah, and you know, and I think that's you know, I just wanted to um, write that mm-hmm. into the novel.
1: Yeah, I love that, and I love um, this sort of repeated wisdom around material things don't matter it's what's in your head that you can carry with you i feel that yeah. resonated with me um, because that was something my parents would talk about as well like if anything happens you need to have a good education because if anything happens that's what you take with you
0: yeah so that, that's actually interesting so some of those conversations are based on real conversations i had with friends yes. um, yeah and i also think it's interesting so how diverse the migrant stories can be but yeah my dad's family um, you know they were displaced but then later on I had friends who were Cambodian and yeah and I definitely had those conversations yeah. where there was despite the conflicts being completely different and in totally different mm-hmm. countries and unrelated yeah those themes that come through you know you, yeah you only get to take what you can carry with you or mm-hmm. things that other people can't take away I think um there are echoes around that and and then also we should just looping back to the vicarious trauma, you know, we should also recognise yeah. um, the trauma people and migrants are bringing, some migrants are bringing mm-hmm. with them and, you know, um, and to understand that a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it also just popped into my head that there might be some ambiguous loss or ambiguous grief there as well with Grubbs. No, no, because he's there, but he's not really there anymore. And that could be yeah. difficult to deal with.
0: Yeah. And so, and the other thing I did want to say was I was very aware that, um, well, you know, it's 2024 now and yeah. I'm writing about um, mental health and, you know, Elijah's journey um, is really challenging and it's really hard. Um, part of what I wanted to do with both Grub and Nona was they both have their own kind of challenges that relate to mental health and and I did want to show Grub sort of um, survive, surviving hers and and thriving yeah. um, in her challenge of of burnout and then also mm-hmm. Nona, that's a sort of complex combination of, like you said, um, you know, there's uh, the trauma of displacement plus um, there's um, like memory loss and dementia there as well with persecutory delusions. But, you know, I did want them as foils to what was happening with Elijah and just also to acknowledge that, you know, um, those mental health challenges, there's a range and yeah. and there's a range of um, severity and, and how it presents and, and what happens as well.
1: Yeah, and I suppose the difference between getting help and not, and that cultural shift in terms of how trauma is understood. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, all very fascinating. There's also a very fascinating character in Tidelines that we haven't spoken about. So I would love to chat about Zed, who is Elijah's best friend uh, in the book. I would like to highlight this line. Uh he was the crystallized amber edges of a moon I couldn't help running my fingers over. This feels to me like the perfect summary of its sort of charm and pull and this sort of danger that or almost violence as well that he possess possesses. Um what do, what drew Elijah and Grub to him?
0: Yeah, it's funny. Um when I started going through the editing process, um with the publishing house, (laughs) one of the comments was, like, um, you know, before she becomes interested in Zed, um, there's a very nice boy at school uh, called Lucas and, and the editor. Like you know, well, I don't understand. You know, you know, why is she attracted to Zed? Um, you know, when she's when she's got you know, Lucas is there yeah. and he's you know, very, you know, upstanding citizen a very nice yeah. boy and everything like that. And, and I and I was like, look, I, I can't tell you why, but um, I can tell you it's 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 true of the species. So yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, he is. I think of him as magnetic. I think. In one way, he's probably very different. So we see, you know, Grub and Elijah live a fairly comfortable life, you know, very, you know, they've got a close and loving family and um, there's no, you know, struggle with money. Both the parents are employed. They live in a, you know, a nice part of the city. And then uh, clearly Zed is sort of transplanted into that world. His childhood, from what we understand, has been a lot rockier. He's living with an aunt. He has a lot less in ter- terms of material things, um, and there's, there's been issues with his um, his biological parents. So look, I think some some of the initial uh, attraction might be you know he was he was different. Like you know he was someone who was sort of came into their world and he he was a little bit different. I think um, you know there's a very uh, um, I was reading this book. Uh, there's a book called, by. Um, Damien Cave book called Into the Rip. It's a really fabulous book. Um, He's an American journalist and he and his family come to live in Australia. And it's all basically about risk-taking in childhood and adolescence. And he makes the comment that, um, you know, generally and stereotypically, um, young adolescent boys will take more physical risks. So they will, you know, they will drive fast or they'll experiment more with illicit substances or they'll jump off Mm -hmm. high ledges. But uh, girls will take more emotional risks, and 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 when I read that, I'd already written the book, but I was like, mm, maybe that's what's going on here. Like, yeah. you know, maybe emotional risk taking here she's not going with the safe boy from school and you know she's attracted to this um that he's older you know he's the brother's friend and there's definitely an edge to Zed. he's always um pushing the envelope a little bit with what they're doing um you know things they shouldn't be doing so there was something exciting and i think even grub said she links that later to sort of you know he feels a bit like an adrenaline rush and Mm -hmm. you know and that confusing um you know she mistakes that for um you know a signal that he's he could be the one um so yeah but he yeah he's definitely yeah very um important character in the book
1: yeah absolutely and i think he's a great foil for elijah as well for everything that you explain but then later in the book because for a while it seemed like their um their paths are parallel run parallel. But then there's that line at the end of the book where it said, two boys got in over their heads, but only one made it back to shore. Am I mad because it wasn't the one I expected? And I suppose, you know, as a reader, I would expect Elijah to be the one who would make it back. And I'm fascinated because you mentioned before that you wanted to explore gene versus environment and how that um, interacts in terms of addiction as well. So would you like to talk more about... This and is it even possible to speculate if why it was that who made it back and not Elijah?
0: Um, I think one of the points I was I was exploring between Zed and Elijah's friendship is yeah, so they've got these different backgrounds and they sort of um, they you know go along this pathway where they're taking they're taking risks and then they end up in very different places. So one of the points I wanted to make, I guess, was things like addiction and mental health um, doesn't really discriminate. Like it doesn't matter that uh, Elijah, you know, he's from a loving home and, you know, a very middle-class family and, you know, he's got all this support. Plus he's got these like amazing talents um, with music and athleticism, like actually, you know, like addiction and mental health can affect anyone. So that was one point I was going to make. Uh, I also did want to pay credit to the journey that Zed had been on. You know, I think Grubb kind of calls him a survivalist, but, you know, he's had a a very challenging childhood and I think, you know, he's learned a little bit along the way to take care of himself and not necessarily in a bad or selfish way, but just in a way that was necessary. So I think probably... Um, through the hard scrap of his childhood um, you know he probably did pick up you know he's probably quite a strong person um, and and maybe navigated um, that risk you know they both faced the same kind of risk but he was able to get himself out because maybe he was sort of had to some earlier skills Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah when I when I was working in the rehab center you know there were people who'd come in and you know, say just with alcohol. You know, they would just be like, "Well, I don't understand. I'm I was drinking the same as all my other friends." And you know, especially like in post high school era. And then it's interesting how for some people that can lead to quite a serious um, issue with addiction. And then other people can just go, "Oh, okay, I'm going to give up tomorrow." And yeah. and so I was interested in that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I really I really enjoyed that about the book. And one of the things I enjoyed is Grubs. Um, struggle I suppose with blame or guilt we started the book with her essentially ready to accuse it of ruining their lives and then she comes to a place of forgiveness perhaps or acceptance um, and I find that really fascinating because um, I think it would have been easy for her to blame Zed for all of it and sort of wipe her hands clean um, of the whole thing but she decided not to take that I guess, um, that route. So yeah. yeah, was, uh, what was the thought process there for you?
0: Zed, Ed, as I said, he was very important and, um, he really broke the book open for me. So definitely when I started writing the book, I was very, I was very interested with temporal association. So I don't know if you come across it in your work, but, mm. um, like if someone, um, if they, you know, try a new brand of tomato sauce and then the next day um, they fall ill with, like, a condition. When you're taking the history, it's very easy. People always always blame the tomato sauce or blame, like, Uh the new thing that just made their life. Because temporarily it seems to associate, but actually, you know, they're probably unrelated. So I was toying with that idea that um, Elijah's life starts to waver um, at the the same summer that um, Zed comes into their life. Um, Mm. So I was toying. That idea of you know grub—that's how grub associates it. Will everything change when Zed came into our life? Um, and I will admit that when I was writing the very first drafts, um, you know, Zed bordered on being a very stereotypical character. So he was very much the bad influence friend. You know, he was one having the bad ideas and leading them down um, the garden path. Yeah. But uh, through the writing of the novel, um, actually, there was there, Yeah, there was a day where very clearly he looked at me from out of the pages and he just said to me um, well you're just as bad as all the rest of them and that's when I realized that I was yeah I was using him as a scapegoat and then I had to re then I had to imagine how that summer the first summer and all the other summers um, looked from Zed's point Mm -hmm. of view and as soon as I started like even though the book is always written from Grubb's point of view um, I had to on a as journey and story and as soon as I let that through in the writing the work became far more interesting um and I think it's a far more nuanced story um but yeah how you finished with your question I mean and it's sort of a nice coming of age arc because I think we see Grub kind of do a little bit of growing up in those 20 minutes that she's sitting in the car on yeah. what she's doing um yeah. yeah and that's part of we're seeing actually just a, mo- a moment of emotional growth for her.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Um, thank you so much, Sarah, for these uh, for this conversation. As you can tell, I'm fascinated by it, a lot of the themes that are in Title Lines, and I've really enjoyed reading it. Um, and I hope that more people will pick it up.
0: Wonderful. Thanks, Priscilla. Thanks for taking the time. And um, yeah, really interesting um, discussion. So I really enjoyed talking to you. Also
1: that wraps us up for today thank you so much for listening if you like us please leave a review on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts find us on novelfeelings.com or on instagram twitter the story graph and goodreads by our novel underscore feelings you can also find my bookstagram page with books with an extra s at the end check out tidelines as well by sarah Sasan. it is now out in bookstores everywhere in australia Thank you again to Sarah for joining us for this interview. Thank you for listening. See you all next
0: time.